ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying time is here. That's right. We're talking about Scream 4, still on Kill by Kill. Greetings and salutations, Internet's your old pal, Patrick Hamilton, coming to you once again from the lovely little hamlet of Woodsboro. This is the Kill by Kill podcast, where we are dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film, the characters. And we're going to unpack all the gory details of Scream 4 in the hopes that a young high school student's untimely end is just the beginning of the jokes that we might make at their expense. And as always, there is only one person I trust that if someone starts to surreptitiously record me on his head cam, she will give me the heads up. The one, the only, Gina Radcliffe. How are you doing today, Gina? I may even find a way to turn that camera away. (laughs) Just surreptitiously replace it with one of your own mayhaps? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Excellent. (laughs) Well, I don't want to scare you, Gina, but we are not alone. That is right. We have a special guest. Now, you might know him from his own podcast, the wonderfully fantastic brother ghoulish tomb of horror, the one, the only Ryan Kenny. How are you doing today, Ryan? I'm great. And thanks for having me, y'all. I am so excited to have you here. I've wanted to have you on for a little while now, and the we just, we ended up talking about so much of Scream in the first half an hour. We're like, oh, we're we're gonna have to break this up even more than we thought. And I immediately your 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 name came to my mind. I'm like, this is the perfect opportunity to get him <laughs> on here. So I'm glad that you had the time to spare. Well, thank you. I'm I'm a huge Scream fan. Um, so much so I don't even hate Scream 3. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you have a generous soul and a giving spirit, and I'm glad for that. I'm also <laughs> glad that Scream 3 exists because it is such a interesting, it's telling on its executive producer and, uh, it's exposed. Like, I, I love it for that. I love it for the, what it is beneath the veneer of the Scream movie. It's just not my favorite Scream movie. Uh, that being said, for a while, Scream 4 also existed in this, oh, does this fit my idea of a Scream movie BS? And I feel like over the past five to six years, it's become clearer and clearer that this film actually is laser focused and ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I think like with Scream 3, it aged well. It's, it's starting to gain that cult classic following because I think everyone would agree that it's not the best of the series. But some of the topics that they talked about have now, looking back in retrospect, aged pretty well. And, you know, it also has Parker Posey. And I'm literally all, I'm always worshiping this woman on my podcast. Like, I, that, I'm always. <laughs> that, that performance is undeniable. Uh, it, it is a different movie, but I very much enjoy watching it. <laughs> yeah, neither, neither of us really cared for three much, but we, we spoke very highly of Parker Posey when oh, yeah. we covered it. Uh, yes, I think about her often talking as she's falling down a hill. I can't stop rolling down this hill. <laughs> it's just, there's a lot of greatness going on to it. But it, also that film was so fucked with by the Weinsteins mm-hmm. that it's it's hard to, 
it's it just an impossible task. If they're just going to screw with you constantly and Craven ended up having this happen to him again with cursed where he essentially made that film three times. It just kind of, you have to assume that there was a, a great version of scream three and it just never reached that level. Whereas I think there is a very good version of scream four that actually made screens and uh, when was, uh, Ryan, what was your first exposure to the film? Did you see it in theaters? Did you see it on home video? Home video. Um, that was my first time seeing it. Uh, actually, that was my first time seeing one through three home okay. video. Um, the first one I actually saw in theaters was four. Uh, it makes sense. Uh, we are, uh, Gina, how would you describe it? Decrepit? Uh, ancient, <laughs> anti- antediluvian, <laughs> acti- actively decaying. Yeah, we uh, we're the oldest podcasters alive, I believe. Um, so <laughs> Us and Ira Glass, that's about it. <laughs> it's just using a cane to find our microphones. But at the time, I was I was really looking forward to this motion picture, and when I did see it, it, it I was a little. There were things that I really liked about it, but. I wasn't sure how much I enjoyed it. And in every subsequent viewing of it, I've enjoyed it more and more and more. What it doesn't quite have are the suspense sequences of two. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's just the special sauce that was two that they really wanted to do that. And I feel like kind of wanted to do it here because there's a constant rear window reference that is going throughout the motion picture. It, it feels like to me, what worked with Scream 2 was the isolation, uh, like the isolation of being on this campus mm-hmm. and having a killer like as like a shark in the water. Whereas like with 4, by going back to Woodsboro, it's just so open, it's so exposed that you lose that little piece. Because that works with horror when something's like more self-contained and it's like tighter. And yeah. despite the fact Scream 1 was all of Woodsboro, you know, we had experience that from a different perspective altogether whereas like going back to woodsboro especially after having seen two it's very obvious that having that open environment just it it creates a different feel for the entire film i i just i i think one you know one of the we'll we'll get to it why don't we start talking about this this film and then we'll get to uh how the sort of suspense sequences play for all of us individually where we left off uh, poor olivia uh, got torn apart by Ghostface. And unlike the two other people in the room witnessing that from, from the next house, Sid sees this and takes off running. She breaks into Olivia's house uh, with a houseplant and runs up the stairs, exactly opposite of the advice she gave herself way back in Scream 1, but she's in rescue mode. Uh, she gets up the stairs to see Olivia literally guts out and blood sprayed everywhere it is uh it is literally a bloodbath in that bedroom i'm still i still remain a little a little shocked at how gory that scene is yes uh, but i also feel like the world turned so much from 1996 and the restrictive nature of how they ruled uh films at that point in time to 2011 where so much of tv now has that much gore in it that you can't say, well, this is inappropriate for eyeballs. This is something you should watch at home on cable. (laughs) (laughs) 
the gore the gore of the scene surprised me too because you don't see that level of gore in any of the other screams and it almost felt like a flex it was like okay we're gonna show off this new budget and what we're able to you know pull off now with a new scream and it was exciting (laughs) it's it's almost as if because so much of the the gut sequence in the first movie in that cold open of Drew Barrymore's boyfriend outside was cut back by the MPAA. It's like, well, if we're going to have the opportunity to do it, let's just literally let it all hang out of her and <laughs> film it and see what happens. Uh, out and about, we have two sheriff's deputies, Haas and Perkins, and they both arrive a day late and a dollar short to help anything once again the police department here is somewhat lacking in action forward policing yeah i I do not know where they are recruiting these these people (laughs) but they've all been trained by dewey because we've seen them react outside of sydney's bookstore uh signing and they were all side shuffling They were they were all mini Deweys in some way, shape, or form, <laughs> and so you know Dewey's a lot of things. Uh, he's a better thinker than he is a mover, obviously. But they've uh, taken up his movement more than his thought processes. Although he's moving pretty well for you know having been you know, stabbed roughly eighty seven times by this yeah. point. Yes, I mean he had nerve damage after the first one, and then the third including one, including taking one directly to the spine. Yes, and, and at the at the end of two, mm-hmm. he, he's just whatever sort of physical therapy he's been involved in. Uh, worth every working. penny. Yeah. Worth every penny. <laughs> um, also, here now we have Jill. Now she's uh, arrived up the stairs. I. Uh, I'm not, mm, one can wonder why Uh, those who have watched the movie, you pretty much know the answer. Those who are watching along with us, well, who's to say, Uh, but she gets her arm sliced by Ghostface uh, and really takes it personally against Sydney. Yeah. She's not the only one that takes things personally against Sydney. There's, there's a very weird moment and and it kind of takes me back to my, uh, perplexment at uh at how the town seems to treat the memory of sydney's mother mm-hmm. in that they bring you know the, the police are there they're bringing olivia's body out it's gotten around what's happened and some stranger we don't know who it is just calls out this is your fault sydney you're just like your mother <laughs> and i'm like i'm sorry who you know ended up I mean, like, I, I guess, you know, the, the, we're going back to what a horrible person Sydney's mother was because she slept around. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, once again, uh, we've stated it many times, but there's no way this one woman's vagina hurt this town this badly. <laughs> and that they're still bringing it up like some 15 years later. Exactly. Fucking 15 years later, someone shouts from that same crowd. I thought this was over. You know that two of these massacres happened away from Woodsboro, right? Like 15 years later, like I thought, I thought murder had been eradicated in my small town. No, I guess not. Once again, last time it happened from two of your fucking own. Maybe it's not Sydney's fault, everyone. Like there's other murderers, active murderers in your own town. Yeah, I guess I'm just a little stuck on you're just like your mother. 
Uh, yeah. I, 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 just, I need an explanation for that. <laughs> Ryan, um, have you ever blamed someone's mother for something that they did? Hmm. <laughs> Think let me let me break out my um little black book of <laughs> <laughs> I know I know we all track uh, some of our friends, our frenemies, our main enemies by what their mothers have been up to, not just lately, but 15 fucking years ago. So <laughs> I mean, well, let's just reiterate that that all that she did was sleep with another man's another 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 woman's husband. That's yeah. all that she did. <laughs> Right now, I, I realize that the 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 you know the, the tipping point was that this woman eventually committed suicide, which that's 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 a terrible thing. That's a tragic thing, mm-hmm. but but for this to result in an ongoing slaughter of people, <laughs> and for people to say, yeah, it was all her fault. It's like no, it's, it's- this is a person you know, kind of you know, take taking a a revenge to you know, well past its you know, natural conclusion it's it's their fault like didn't billy's dad bear some level of culpability <laughs> it's a very, it's a he very just gets like to... puritanical notion that that <laughs> you know oh she came and stole another what another woman's man away yeah i mean above all that aren't the people who are picking up these knives and putting on the mask the real culprits like not not oh, her yeah, vagina yeah, yeah. And like, that, that's something that's one thing that I I'm not super cool with, you know, with the with how this the the, me, the, the you know something that this movie is in particular trying to say. I feel it's leaning a little bit hard into uh, you know, the 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 youths of today, how you know nothing is nothing seems real to them. It's all you know what you can get for the clicks and and you know where we're. We're putting up masks and making fun of this you know, mass murder that took place in our town. And, and I mean, and I, but on the other hand, when you look at like how people treat serial killers and all online now, that's, I guess that's not an unfair assessment. I think it kind of leans a little too hard into, well, you know, the young folks today, they don't, they don't care about such things as, you know, murder. <laughs> right. This town is uh, so bad at raising children. That not only are they obsessed with serial killers, but many of them have become serial killers. <laughs> so I don't know that that could entirely land on one woman having a couple of affairs. You know what I mean? Exactly. So we cut from the, I just want to say that uh, Trevor, the boyfriend, uh, is a terrible red herring. I don't buy that he can tie his own shoes. I'm not entirely sure that he can use a, a microwave. I don't, he does not come off as a master planner or someone I should be afraid of in any way, shape, or form. I mostly just don't buy him as a member of the cinema club. <laughs> he does not come off as a, a robust cinema club just, member. Just sitting there scowling at everyone. Right. Like you're going to make him the secretary or the treasurer. Like, what is he doing? I just mm, uh, mm, don't care for it. He, he kind of reminds me of um, a show I used to watch growing up called A Pup Named Scooby-Doo. And they actually have a character <laughs> named Red Herring. And literally every <laughs> single episode, it's always Red Herring. Like Fred is just like on it. And the one episode that it actually is red herring is probably one of the best best things I ever saw on TV. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think it was a fun bone to throw to us who we're all looking at him. He's clearly not the killer. Like yeah. he, he's a, a red herring. He's 
just here to pretty much, I don't know, kind of make fun of the the stereotypes for that type of trope. You know, the red herring, the person who's so sultry and Sith-like in the corner and um, so broody. And he's clearly the killer, but he's not. And it was just funny because he everyone knew he wasn't the killer it, from the beginning. <laughs> they were trying to set it up too hard. When you're trying to squeeze something so tight, it just kind of slips away. <laughs> he has a smoldery look, right? He's a handsome, he's a handsome kid. Uh, they are a handsome. My, my apologies. I'm once again misgendering uh, this person. Uh, it, they are very handsome, but they just don't have that danger feel to me. Like, I don't know if if they want to fight or fuck, as it were. And Billy has that. Stu's a wild man. You don't know what he's thinking. He's all over the map. And here, Trevor just, uh, he doesn't do it for me. Let's let's uh, take it closer to the Woodsboro High Cinema Club because Gail interviews both Robbie and Charlie were once again presented with the idea uh, that Robbie is is wearing this what appears to be a Fisher Price uh, camera on the side of his head, and what I don't understand is how someone hasn't taken that off his head and just smashed it because <laughs> that's what would have happened to me. Well, he's recording his life, every aspect of high school, because you know it's really interesting. High school. <laughs> You know what? My, my memories I want to uh, have all the time was how shitty high school was. Amen. Uh, Ryan, is that a memory you wish you had in real time so that you could see it from your eyes perspective continually? I want the Madden play-by-play if, if that's available. <laughs> <laughs> I want it all. <laughs> yeah, I. but what she learns from this interaction is that there's a cinema club and that must mean that the killer is in Cinema Club. And it's kind of like, uh, is it? Is it? Is that? Is that a leap of logic you would make, Gina? I mean, it's difficult for me to say because, you know, I, I have seen it and, and it turns, you know, it's, 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 it turns out to be a, a, you know, a wise assessment. I, but I don't know. I mean, they're, they're, they're just so hard in the paint of they're going to, you we're going to imitate these murders you know, as closely as possible and you know just they're going to they're going to go harder they're going to make them bigger yeah. so i mean I, I i guess well everything about the series is so meta so of course they're going to they're going to join the cinema club because they they have this event where they watch these movies every year right and we will get to that because there's much to be discussed about. Well, they, they treat it like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Apparently. Right. <laughs> now, Ryan, I, I know the answer for Gina and I. Like if we went to Friday the 13th, the, the film franchise that we started this podcast with, we, we talked about it, every character in the order in which they died, we drew it out, right? Because good or bad or in between, we just have a love for this dumb movie. But I don't think I would sit in a crowded theater and just shout out all the lines I know while it's happening as if that is a register of my enjoyment of it. That to me feels weird unless I'm specifically going to a a cinema that says, 
this showing of this, we're all going to talk during it. A rowdy screening, as it were. Um, But Ryan, what do you say? I'm the worst person to ask because (laughs) Gina already said it for Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like going to the shadow cast are probably one of my favorite uh, things to do where Mm -hmm. you're shouting the call lines or whatever the case may be. It's it's really fun. I I mean, the thing is, it, it depends on the setting. Now, if yeah. if I went to because I recently saw Candyman in theater, if mm-hmm. I went there and there's people doing that, I'd I'd probably you know turn into the audience from Scary Movie that turned on Brenda, um, <laughs> on that person, but because <laughs> that's obnoxious, but uh, <laughs> but it's the it's the setting, like yeah, you know, I would sit here and talk trash about it, and then y'all be like, yeah, and then you'd find footage of me at one of these things and call me a damn liar. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, wait I a think, minute, you know. <laughs> right. I think, yeah, that's the point, I suppose. And that's one I should consider. Because if you do have, a, a, you know, that sort of rowdy showing where the point of it is to engage with what's happening and say those lines out loud, that absolutely could be fun. I just don't know. Like, if I, they're putting it on in a barn. They're literally putting a show on in a barn. Right. And I have an outdoor screen, but if I invited a bunch of people and they started talking while I projected a movie, I'm like, you're not invited back. (laughs) (laughs) That is my job to talk about movies in the appropriate setting, which is here. Well, I Um, I I have gone to a couple of like audience participation screenings of, uh, I mean, I I have gone to Rocky Horror and it was a lot of fun. mm -hmm. Um, And I've I've gone to a couple for The Room which you know, the room is fine because you're you, you don't need to you know, be qu- quietly listening for every you know, scintillating bit of dialogue that comes right. out. <laughs> right. if, if anything, the movie is improved by people <laughs> you, know, you know, riffing on 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 the dialogue and the god awful interminable sex scenes, and <laughs> you know, it it just makes it a much more pleasant viewing experience. The man but, has but, a hinder that demands a cinematic viewing. But I, but, but I just feel like, you know, at a certain point, you've just got people screaming in a theater and that's just, that's not something that's a good time for me. Right. And that's what I feel that barn is, is, and this is what we found so objectable to the, the stab screening at the cold open of Scream 2. It's like, everyone needs to back this fucking off several notches. Like, I, that is not, um. A first-run horror screening that I want to be a part of. <laughs> but that also, there are a bunch of teenagers and we're old. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I wish for them to get off all of the various lawns that I no longer have, but still, <laughs> maybe the property, the lawn once stood upon. Let's put it that way. Um, but after this, they're all in the hospital. Uh, Jill's getting fixed up. Uh, Sydney is being attended to. And... Uh, Sydney's book publicist says, oh, my God, this is the best thing we could have ever asked for. You can name your price for your next book. Just it's blank. Tell and then write whatever you want and you'll make that money. And this is the wrong person to say that to because Sydney, despite everything, despite having a lot of trust issues and obviously carrying a burden that is not truly her own uh, from Everything that she's gone through is like, fuck you, you're fired, get out of my sight. I, I, and, I, have, to, I have to interrupt for a second and ask sure. you, Patrick, you, you, you work in, 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 in publicity. 
Yes. Uh, is it normal to to not look at the thing you're trying to <laughs> you're trying to promote? That 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 <laughs> seems to be a little counterproductive. I agree. I think <laughs> as far as being a PR person, I think Rebecca uh, fails on multiple levels. Like this is uh, very much a holly. This is the kind of person that would be more of a stars PR person than a literature PR person in my mind. This is being, this is more of an entertainment parody that's happening here. Whereas I think people who, do a lot of publicity in the literature world, in the book world, are a little bit more, they're more attuned to that specific audience. And she seems completely oblivious. Like she's there for the paparazzi Mm -hmm. that are not following this woman around. I just, it seems like a bad pairing all around. She doesn't know how to read a room either, which is very frightening. She just like blows into any space that she's in. It's like money, money, money. And you know, I appreciate the, the the energy, but but geez, I just got stabbed up. True. Yes. There there's been a death here of a young person, and she very much doesn't care. She views it as an opportunity. Again, that is the point of her role, but it comes off a bit wild. So uh she's just really bad at human interaction. But then uh, Rebecca is fired, goes to retrieve her car. I don't think she believes deep down she has been fired. She thinks Sydney's just mad at her and will let her cool off and, you know, cooler heads will prevail and whatnot. But she's going to retrieve her car in the hospital parking lot. It is dark. Uh, there are a lot of places to hide. And it turns out Ghostface is going to close the circle around Sydney of people that she might be able to trust or at least make an example out of Rebecca. Uh, She is hunted in this parking lot. She eventually makes it to her own car and has a a series of wild events that sort of reflect the, I can't start this car mania of scream one. Um, I think they're trying to make this a combination of that is someone underneath the car as someone fooled with the car, how do I get out of the car? Sequences this, from both one and two. This is the first time that I have yelled at a at a, a horror movie character in a long time, <laughs> and, and and it felt good. It felt it felt cleansing. But I I did yes. yell, "Why are you getting out of the car?" It is a terrible fucking idea. You uh, have a cell phone. Because, yeah. Call the police. And yeah. stay in your car. Yes. She does none and of those things. No. She's making very bad decisions. But of course, previous to this, we've not seen Rebecca make good decisions regardless of the danger. Well, that, that, that's <laughs> fair. But but I, I, I just thought it was worth noting this is for the first time I've yelled in a while. <laughs> and I think that you just wonder, you know, that thing that, a lot of critics complain about, but is it sort of necessary function of, of a lot of slasher movies? Like people just make bad decisions when there's danger about, and we used to think this was dumb, but a, they don't know they're in a horror movie and B 
about 40 to 45% of everyone around us is also making the dumbest fucking decision they possibly can at any moment. Well, true. We did. We did cover that in our last episode about how <laughs> yes. you know, re- current events suddenly make you know, stupid decisions seem less implausible. No, no less stupid. Just, just right. less, just, just, just more plausible that someone would make that decision. Yeah. The, the earmark of what kind of person would do this is like, well, turn on Twitter. <laughs> You'll find them very quickly. Uh, Rebecca tries to hoof it back to the emergency exit in heels. This is another one of those moments where you're like, ditch the fucking heels and just put, put the feet on the floor and go for it. Doesn't much matter because once she gets to the door, the handle of it comes right off, which means at some point Ghostface used a screwdriver <laughs> to set this trap. Like, whoever is under the hood here has a tool belt. Yeah, attached I, to this them. version of Ghostface is definitely a little more uh, intuitive. <laughs> it makes a little more. Sure. It has it kind of has that that uh, that that Jason Voorhees you know preemptive thinking and where where mm-hmm. they know what you're going to do before five minutes before you do it. Yes. So uh, that brings us to a question, Ryan, of course, I want your opinion here, because when it came to Jason Voorhees, we we over the course of that two and a half years of covering those films, we determined that Jason's uh, superpower is that he he knows um, how you sex and uses that against you. Just whatever your sex game is, he understands it. He doesn't understand what sex is, but he does understand your sex game. And whatever that horniness level is within you, he uses it to his advantage. So my guess is that our ghost face here also understands how people panic in parking garages. <laughs> He's the parking garage whisperer. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I, I'm just thrilled at the idea of, of whoever is underneath the ghost face costume at this moment in time is trolling around with a Batman utility belt. Like, I got to get the screwdriver. All right. (laughs) That's the first one on top. Okay, that's the back one now. When this person gets back there in heels, I'll have them where I want them. (laughs) It would be funny. It would be funny uh, if, like, after he uh, he tosses Rebecca's body off the top of the the police, uh, out the parking garage, he like mm-hmm. tries to leave the, the through the, to the door, then realize he broke the hand, and like oh, just show like his shoulders. <laughs> no, I'm stuck. And, like you know, kind of just the you know, gesture, like really, and then like runs the other direction. <laughs> or like, where did I put those screws? Okay, they're in my left pocket. All right, here we go. Gonna get out of here. <laughs> sure, uh, makes sense. If you want to enjoy a separate movie from the movie that's actually happening. During the press conference with Sheriff Dewey, just watch Adam Brody's face because he's having his own movie right then and there. Every every reaction he is giving is as, as if he's holding his own press conference and does not realize he's doing it in front of everyone else. It's like when I when Ollie was a kid and he just refused to chew and so I would put food in his mouth and mimic chewing. And then for years afterwards, when he would put something in his mouth, I would reflexively chew. <laughs> that's what he's that's what he's doing. It's fucking insane. It's, it's great. Um, but 
in the midst of this and the the power dynamic between Dewey and Gale, <laughs> they're basically having an argument in the middle of a press conference. Uh, it doesn't get very far because Rebecca's body is hurled off the top of this parking structure on top of a news van. And now we are back to two tropes that Scream loves to revisit. And that is throwing people off of high places and news van violence. Yeah. What does this movie franchise have against news vans? I was going to say, yeah, news vans really, really uh, you take a beating in this series. I don't know how this isn't a thing. Like if they don't also have somebody killed near in or about a news van in this one that's coming out in January, I'm going to feel like they don't understand the franchise in some way. <laughs> like this is as big as like Jason kills you after you have sex or, you know, Freddie doesn't understand, like is going to help you to death, whatever you uh, fear deep inside. He's like, Oh, you don't like drugs. Here's all the drugs in my fingers. I don't know how to understand how drugs work, everyone. I don't get it. <laughs> that, whatever that is, that's news vans and scream. It all seems to be about news vans. It's like a a, a news van killed Kevin Williams' father or something. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Kevin Williamson, let us know what you have against news fans. <laughs> Come on, there's his girlfriend's from. <laughs> this is like a news van stole his scholarship that he was going to use to get it through college. He's like, fuck, news vans. <laughs> um, I think uh, one of the big differences between 1996. And 2011 is illustrated the next morning. In 1996, when someone died, they're like, we got to call off school. Everyone go home. And in 2011, they're like, one of the members of the student body died. Uh, so we'll see you at 830. Three sharp. of them by that point. Right. They're on three like in two days. <laughs> gotta be in school everyone we can't listen we would let you go but we need the funding please come to school if you see someone in a ghost face run i guess i don't know how this works death is now a part of the public school and, system. and nobody and you know nobody really seems to be all that put out about it which which again <laughs> i'm like it's just is this playing into, and that's a problem with, I don't know if I call it a problem, but that's the interesting question with the Scream movies is, mm. is this a self-aware trope or is this trying to say something about, you know, the, the younger folks today being a little detached and, and, you know, sort of viewing everything from the lens of social media and not really you know, understanding the reality of it because everybody is just like, yep, you know, and, uh, you know, now this girl will never go out with me. She's dead. Like, dude, she was disemboweled. You know? yeah, <laughs> well, like, the funny thing is, I think that's in the, in the 96 one, there was this big question, like, are the youth being desensitized by like violent video games? True. And, yeah. It's just a different, and, um, yeah. And horror point. movies and everything. So that was a question at that time. And even like some of the real life things that were going on around that time, it was just a hot topic. And nowadays it's, it's still going on. You know, that's still a question, even though a lot of that stuff has been disproven. Like how much is the youth desensitized 
and um, what is causing this desensitization, like this, this whatever word I'm trying to say. <laughs> right. Like, I think that's what's happening. They're still asking the question, but instead of it being about video games or horror movies, now it's about social media, which is kind of interesting. Like how much it's, how much of yourself can you turn off to get likes and clicks? And true. also sort of There's, sort of presenting yourself as this, you know, having a facade of being very cool and, and very cynical. And so, you know, you, at least for whatever audience is viewing you or 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 you perceive as viewing you on social media, you know, can't see you showing like real emotion or being scared or or concerned or anything like that. Even with like 96, what was interesting is even though the staff and the teachers, they were clearly very upset about what had happened to the youth that had been killed. I mean, Sydney and her friends, they they kind of still had a party like they still seem like they were okay, like they were also uh, desensitized, just like the killers were. And it was an interesting thing to witness because it's like, okay, you guys are really still going to throw a party. And this is like a year after, you know, Cindy's mother died. And it was just so many layers to it versus like here, it's still going on. You know, these people died, but they're still going to throw a stab-a-thon. Let's watch these movies in a shitty bar <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere. Right. <laughs> it's a moral imperative that we do this. They're also a generation that, you know, at this moment, you know, that that time and currently, like, active shooter drills are something that they're doing. Like it's become an accepted way of life that the potential for someone to enter your school and just start shooting people is something that we should just, you know, plan on because there's nothing we can do to stop it. And at a certain point that must deaden your, uh, you know, perception of dying. And then there's the, the age old trope, uh, which, you know, slasher films engage in across the board in that young people feel a sense of immortality and horror movies trade off of that. And it's one of the reasons why they're so popular with that particular age set. True, true. Let us look at the walls because we don't see many bedrooms here. So we're going to have to look at the bedroom, as it were, of the Woodsboro Cinema Club. On the wall, we have... Uh, posters for The Hills Have Eyes, Feast, Wolf Creek, uh, and another fucking Farewell Republic ad bill. What is this thing, Gina? <laughs> what is it? It's everywhere. It, it, it just sort of sounds like, you know, it could be the name of like a sort of shitty electronica band. Yeah, it still looks like either Daft Punk is playing at, at my house, my house, or... You know, it's Boba Fett has got a band and he's coming through town. <laughs> um, also on the walls here, we've got the 78 uh, Dawn of the Dead poster. We've got Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, which I had forgotten up until that moment, had been dubbed H2 for fuck's sake. <laughs> H2. Uh, better movie than the first, but if you really want to know our thoughts on it, of course, we're going to be talking about all the Halloween franchise on Patreon. So if you want to hear us talk about it, that's where you're going to find it, including Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. <laughs> we made a promise, everyone. <laughs> um, also, you have Carpenter's The Thing, Death Proof, Brazil, Stab 3, Vertigo, Army of Darkness, Stab 6, The People Under the Stairs, 
And then on the whiteboard, they have a beat by beat breakdown, a rear window. Um, so just in case you thought we were making that up last week, no, this movie has a severe rear window fetish. <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely, you know, kind of putting on those neon signs and say, here it is, look right here. Yeah. <laughs> if you're wondering what the movie's about, it's Eat at Joe's This. So, uh, also, I didn't realize that the tagline for the first Stab movie was, quote, this is gonna hurt. <laughs> and as a tagline professional, I would not submit that for Stab. I find that not taking the source material quite seriously enough. <laughs> and as a but general, I guess cons- Robert Rodriguez thought it was great. So it went up on the poster. As a general consumer, it's everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad. It's like, it's so bad. <laughs> it's good. Like this is going to hurt. And it's so insensitive because like yeah. when you really peel back the layer from our world, scream is just, you know, totally you know fiction but inside of Mm -hmm. their world this is actually based on some stuff that happened so it's just can you imagine some of the stuff that's been made around like true crime and stuff having that tagline this is gonna hurt like that's that's pretty damn sad uh the the whole thing when i was growing up here in town um i grew up uh and i hit a certain age around the night stalker here in los angeles and um it he had a pattern which he uh, would hit uh, homes that were accessible to a freeway entrance. And so uh, my mother hated when I slept downstairs on Saturday nights to watch Saturday Night Live. She told me I could not do it any any longer because if I did, the Night Stalker would kill me. <laughs> oh, God. Oh God. This, I love that. I, I love new- that story. <laughs> <laughs> oh my fucking god it's unbelievable uh it's weird to some degree that the that this movie considering how much robbie you know has a camera on his head and later we're gonna have a bunch of webcams that this movie wasn't pushed to a found footage place considering how prevalent that was when this movie was out um i mean i'm glad for the restraint but <laughs> I'm surprised it's not a bigger element considering what found footage was at the time. Yeah. I'm happy they didn't go in that direction. Yeah, me, me uh, too. <laughs> I think that could have been an easy, you know, a cheap way to go about it. So I'm, 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 I'm glad that I'm, I'm glad too. They didn't. Well, I agree. I mean, you don't hire Wes fucking Craven to make a found footage movie. That that's ridiculous, but I am surprised because of the Weinstein's fuckery that they didn't make the worst possible decision because they've been known to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike the original screen, uh, which emerged at a time when slashers were very played out. Uh, screen four comes out at a time when reboots and remakes were reaching the end of their post 2000 cycle. Uh, and the saw franchise has now been killed off and replaced by paranormal activity at the October box office. And the idea of reboots and remakes is, is very front and center uh, during the cinema club conversation. So let us uh, pan backwards and just look at what scream four entered the marketplace into uh, last week. We said it came out in January. That's we transposed the new one with four. It came out in April, but of the legacy sequels 
that emerged at this point in time. You have Paranormal Activity 3 coming out in October. You have Final Destination 5 and Scream 4. Now, those are good movies. There's not a real bummer in that group. Paranormal 3, probably the best of the group, in my opinion. Uh, People enjoy Final Destination 5. Then you also have the weird remake reboots of the Thing prequel that Universal fucking ruined by forcing the filmmakers to replace all the physical makeup and special effects with terrible CGI. And then you have Fright Night, the remake, which is not as good as the original, but I do enjoy it for its own thing. Like, I like Fright Night. Yeah, I haven't haven't seen that one yet, honestly. The remake, reboot. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 entirely decent. It is worth your time and attention. Will it blow you away? No. Will it ever replace the original? Hell no. But for a Fright Night movie, it's fucking good. Because I haven't seen that one either. Like, I, I've seen the originals, but I haven't seen either of the remakes, one or two. Oh, I have not seen two. But <laughs> I refuse. <laughs> but I do think that first one is worth everyone's time and attention. And then they, <laughs> Robbie... They, Charlie, they, they, uh, state pretty plainly, like, you know, original horror is just gone. Like, it doesn't exist. Let me run down some of the films that are, they're talking about that don't exist, everyone, that have been erased down the memory hole of original horror. Drew Goddard's Cabin in the Woods. Barrett and Weingard's You're Next. Mike Flanagan's Absentia. Joseph Kahn's Detention. Joe Cornish's Attack the Block. Lynn Ramsey's We Need to Talk About Kevin. Jeff Nichols' Take Shelter. Almodovar's The Skin I Live In. Ben Wheatley's Kill List. Lucky McKee's The Woman. Now, I'm just going to stop there. (laughs) Those are fucking amazing motion pictures. Great horror movies, thrillers, just top-notch original entertainment. It is completely dismissed in this. And I feel like, are we having a randy moment here where these two are set up as experts who are ultimately wrong about the horror scene? Like, do you mean like, is this a, a deliberate choice on the screenwriter's fault to 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 make them so out of touch with what's actually going on in horror? Or is this reflecting how the screenwriter felt about horror? I wonder if it's a mix of both, but obviously it's, there's no way Kevin Williamson could have known that all these movies were going to be this fucking good. I mean, he's, this is being filmed. At yeah. The same I time. mean, you kind of have to look at it as to you know, when it came out. I mean, these was, most of these were probably being made around the time that, that, that this was, uh, that this would be made. So I don't, yeah, right. I don't know if you could fairly judge that. I don't know. It's it's a it's a weird thing to make such a definitive stance because yes this in 2010 that's when the remake of a nightmare on Elm Street comes out and if there's a dumber remake like I don't know that I found it yet that was just an a truly terrible experience to talk <laughs> it was fun to talk about it was terrible to watch yeah, you know? yeah. It, it was just yeah. it was bad it was just so so uh, dreary so unfun it was out and, of touch with like the charm of the original in every way conceivable. Yeah. Well, it's a bunch of people who didn't want to make it, making it. 
none of the actors wanted to be there. The director didn't want to make it. Everyone thought, we'll make it scary, but then they don't quite understand what about Freddy is scary. And then they just made the whole film brown. It's just yeah. a weird decision uh, across the board. It's not to say that there wasn't good horror movies coming out in 2010, not as prevalent as 2011, but you've got the remake of The Crazies. Like, that's a good fucking thriller. You got Let Me In. That's a damn good vampire movie. You've got Wands Insidious coming out that year. So it's not like nothing good was happening. Well, I, I but, think it might also be a little bit of its own red herring in, in presenting these two as, you know, a couple of dipshits and, 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 nice. you, yeah. know, you know, yeah. so you, you wouldn't think it was, you know, you wouldn't think you would think, Oh, okay. These are the, these are the Randy's of the movie because one's got a yeah. unrequited crush on the other car another, on one of the, one of the girls and, and, you know, they don't have any game and they're both kind of awkward and nerdy. They're the Randy's. So it, it's, yeah. it's, you know, a little throwing the audience off. True. I also wonder, I don't know, like, I don't know if it's intentionally, you know what I mean? But that they're teenagers. So it's like, maybe they don't have like that full grasp or understanding of certain horror that's going on at that time, just because they just know what they know. Whereas like, yeah. if you're like a horror fan that's been doing this for like a long time, like we know certain films that we discuss openly amongst ourselves and we dive deeper and try to figure out more about what has happened and what's going on now. Whereas for them, they're probably seeing some of those posters on the wall for like the first time. So they're slowly making their way through this genre that has so many entries. And they, they may, you know, we see this in all sorts of phantoms where people calcify their supposed love of a genre or film series. And it just calcifies around the way they felt when they first watched yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. And any, any someone who's trying to do something new, they just like, well, that's not what I'm looking for. That quote unquote isn't horror. Mm-hmm. And that always just my ears go up because when you try to put a genre as expansive as horror in a, in a tight box that tells me it's not that you love horror. You just loved these movies and you don't want to see anything else. And based on the amount of po- posters in that room, it kind of feels to me like they are Randy's 2.0 in that they have calcified their enjoyment of the genre around things that have came out years before and stab. Like they're just into that. Yeah. And anything that varies outside of that does not, doesn't calculate for them. Well, I, and I would also suggest that their primary interest in the stab movies is because it took place in their hometown. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know from the cold open that the, the the franchise has seriously hit the the skids when part five becomes a time travel horror movie that no one liked. So uh, that is the Woodsboro Cinema Club, everybody. <laughs> so they also describe, in their words, the quote unquote rules uh, for this new era of horror. And it kind of comes down to go left when everyone says go right. The unexpected is what is expected. And you're kind of like, what are these? They're so nefarious. They're not even, you know, you can't have sex in a movie. They're not defined. They're just so general. They can apply to absolutely everything. And then the one that, that they bring up that specific is the only way to avoid being killed in a slasher movie is to be gay. 
And that's which, just wrong because have they not heard right. of the bury your gaze trope? <laughs> I, oh, Ryan, you read my fucking mind. <laughs> I'm just <Exactly>. saying. <laughs> I'm telling you. Uh, but that I think goes back. Now I feel like Williamson, you know, a queer writer and creator is laying this in for them to look stupid. That I, that's what I think clicks it over into them being the Randys of this motion picture. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with you there. Yeah, for sure. Especially with that follow up point, because that's a well-known trope at this point. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I and Williamson has to know it. <laughs> he has I to hope. be aware of it. I hope. <laughs> so to me, this is either an Aaron Kruger getting involved and he doesn't know what he's talking about, or Williamson very much knows what he's talking about. And I can't quite decide which one it is. Uh, and if the audience has an opinion, we would love to hear it. Um, they also say there's got to be a twist, which to me typifies a movement that was more at home in Scream's origin point, peaking with The Matrix and The Sixth Sense in 1999. Again, the idea here is very solid because what they're going to, what they're setting up is that they're going to move the third act party gathering to the second act. So where you think the movie would ultimately end, the movie continues from that moment on. So I think that's part of this setup. I do enjoy uh, Gail's line. Okay, where is this circle jerk going to take place? <laughs> yeah, me too. Like, she's hitting this hard. Uh, last episode, we talked about me in particular. I really enjoyed David Arquette in this movie. I think he's doing very layered, interesting work. And I also have to give it up for Courtney Cox. She knows exactly the gale that she wants to present. It's an extension of everything we've seen before. And she does a very good job as gale in this motion picture. I think she's given some great lines and she knocks it out of the park at every opportunity she's given. Yeah. She's just, she's just, uh, you know, she's excited to finally have something to do with her time again, to, to be back in the reporter saddle. She's just almost a little too excited to, to capture a killer. <laughs> Yes. Everyone sort of um, graphs back to that one moment where you felt alive or whatnot. You know, she caught, she helped catch three serial killers. Like, where would you be if that was what you were known for? Yeah, the, like the, Gina, the, the everyone knows you caught three serial killers. So <laughs> the the idea is that she's just kind of sitting around, not getting any, not 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 getting any work is also a little a little weird. It, it's not like they yeah. had they you know, decided to have a couple kids and she she stayed home to 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 take care of them. It's just she's just you know she's passe now. She's old hat. She's not getting any more work, and it's like she's caught three serial killers. <laughs> You can't say that she, she doesn't be, she, have... She should be hosting her own show on, like, court TV. And I'm sure she was offered that, but, uh, you know, domesticity called, and I suppose that's the point of, of where her character is. So we now cut to the Roberts resident, which is, uh, residence, which is currently under police surveillance, uh, and we witness what I would call a crime. If you were looking for something to point at Jill as a possible suspect... May I present what she views as a snack, which is 
string cheese and chocolate, and chocolate milk. milk. I said the same thing. <laughs> I... I was appalled. <laughs> and it's like 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> I just, that's a lot of dairy for late at night. Also, not pl- not flavor profiles that pair with one another. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, 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 I you, hope she is for her to say she is not lactose intolerant. Oh, <laughs> my God. The, what must be coming out of her when you're putting that in? It's just straight to jail, honestly. That is, if I see you pairing chocolate milk with string cheese, I I will be sitting away. Let's put it that I, way. I'm just I'm just smacking one of those things out of your hand. <laughs> <laughs> Which one? <laughs> <laughs> Probably the chocolate milk because I feel like string string cheese is an acceptable late night snack. Yeah, but I don't know about that big old glass of chocolate milk. <laughs> I mean, oh, just uh, maybe it's because I'm not a chocolate milk fan necessarily, but that that feels wild to me that a teenager would put that in their body. But, you know, uh, they are what they are. So in the conversation that Jill and Sydney have here, it's a bit of setup for Jill in that she doesn't quite understand how Sydney handles the pressure of the experiences of her life of going out. And when people see her, they stare at her like she is the show. And in a way we have a person who very much actually wants that. So it's not so much that she disbelieves it is that she secretly wants it. And the difference between her and Sydney is that Sydney hears this and immediately tells her the way I survive is I don't make it about me. It's not about me. And that to me shows that the writer and the performer have understood where Sydney is at this point in her life. She cannot control what has happened in the past. All she can do is control how she reacts to what is in front of her. And a lot of this is not about her. Right. And she, you know, she sort of views as, she focuses on the people that she loves and, and she sort of has a meaningful pause. Like she wants to say like you. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and she's, she's, she just, I, I kind of like that. She didn't, we don't really know much about Sydney's personal life right. at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, she may have a husband somewhere or a partner. We don't know. She, she does seem to, you know, keep her life compartmentalized which is definitely something that people who have experienced trauma will do. They'll, mm-hmm. you know, they'll have one part of their lives that focus on that. And then they'll have, you know, everything that happened after that in, in another part of their lives. And, you know, never the, you know, never the two shall meet. Right. And All the right. thing is like, it's really, it makes sense that that is exactly where she would be mentally mm-hmm. because from the first film, we see that the people who are just so desperate for that type of attention are really the threat when seeing Billy and seeing Stu. And it even feels the same way about like Mickey from, you know, part two. He Mm. wanted this elaborate court case and what that could mean in the press and for him and everything. And aside from Roman and um, Debbie Salt, who doesn't exist, um, (laughs) like their motives were a bit different. We're returning to that in this film. These are people who still want attention and it's, they're the real threat. 
And so it's the thing that turns Jill into a monster, but kind of consecrates Sydney as someone who has her head screwed on the right way and understanding the type of monsters that can make. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's sort of that toxic, like, you know, any, any, any attention is good. attention. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely true. Uh, So let us uh, reach uh, the apex of our particular sequence here. And that is Stabathon. Kirby is in the house. Uh, and guess what? So is Matthew Lillard. He's in the background. So I didn't notice that. <laughs> he he shows up in a party scene. If there's a party scene, Matthew Lillard <laughs> will always be there. He's the magic totem of the Scream franchise. He's not he's not the the franchise's best producer. Uh, that was Drew Barrymore, but he is the magic totem that will make a movie come out right. Nice. Uh, Gail enters in full blown. How do you do fellow kids mode? <laughs> if, oh, I love that. If, She's just kind of like bobbing around with the, with the mask on. Yeah. There's a, there's a bit of a, a shoulder shuffle that happens when she enters in. She's, there's a lot of two finger pointing going on. If dabbing had been in fashion, I'm guessing a dab would have happened. Um, and I, I am painfully aware that this is a movie and realism is not something that I'm seeking in Scream 4. But when you're going to have a character plant four security cameras, right? Don't have their cords wrapped around the base. <laughs> because <laughs> that tells me they're supposed to plug into something. There's no battery attached to them. <laughs> Just like someone cut those cords. Just, they're not or cover it up, whatever it is, don't let me see the cords because when they're not attached to anything, that tells me they're not plugged in, everyone. That is a plug-in device. It's just funny to me that she is so, 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 so certain that the next murder is going to take place at this at this party that she's like, well, I'm going to catch them on camera. <laughs> well, she has no backup. And quite frankly, if she did show up with Dewey, my guess is a murder would not take place because why would you do it with the police on site? You know what I mean? I just figure at this point, though, that, that you know, all, all of everything that they thought was going to happen didn't actually happen or happen slightly differently, that she wouldn't be so hellbent on, you know, this is when it's going to happen next, I, you know, that I'm going to focus my entire attention on, on this this you film festival out in the middle of a barn. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, I do like some of the dynamics at play here. And I think the film uses it very well. There, there's an insertion of an age gap device because when Dewey and Gail first arrive in scream one, they're like what, six or seven years older than the protagonists of scream. And here they're an entire generation above the actual participants in the movie. And there's some element of, I don't understand how the kids work to their dynamic that I very much enjoy. Like no, they're never portrayed as so cool that the kids instantly fall all over themselves to be around them. It's more like, well, uh, I have experience and youth is like, I don't care. Is what it comes down to. (laughs) Um, uh, I do also enjoy their personal dynamic as a married couple here because what she's asking for is not that 
do we believe her and her alone, but simply participate in what she believes is uh, a solid course based on their, their history they have together. And his reaction when she is not around is to act like the adult that he is. And then in their personal interactions, his emotional maturity immediately dials back to when they first met. Like there's something that just his voice goes up, like you said in the last episode, Gina, and he just be kind of becomes Dewey again. He's not Sheriff Dwight. And that, that drow just furrows. <laughs> really does. And while it's convenient for the plot of the film, it's not that different from a lot of issues that arise in any marriage. You just sometimes a person who you are in a relationship with says, I need you to trust me on this. And while you may know outside factors that they're not taking in, you have to go, hey, I'm listening to what you have to say. And I understand you need me to be part of this. And that's a real life dynamic that I think is very interesting and will be interesting again now that they are no longer a married couple in this fifth movie. Yeah, I, I I have to assume that that they're probably going to be written to be divorced. I I would assume. I, I just it feels like, but who knows? I mean, I know we, that I know that they are they are friendly in real life still. Yeah. But I I would assume that they are probably going to because it would be an an interesting dynamic. Either way, yeah. whether whether they're written to be still married or they're written to be divorced. There's something yeah. else I saw floating around the timeline around this. Um that I pray doesn't happen just personally. They're they're mm-hmm. trying to say that um they won't be surprised if Sydney and Dewey start to become involved with one another in some way. That's just strange to me. Um there is a moment in Scream 4 where they do share kind of like a I don't know, it's like a quiet moment where they're staring at one another and it feels like there might be something between them, but I'm just I'm I'm manifesting with all my powers like that that not happen. I, I hope not. I feel like there's yeah. more of a brother and sister relationship yeah, between I the agree. two of them. Yes. It's a shared history. They have looked out for one another. They've been around one another during high drama moments, epic moments that few of us ever actually go through and they've gone through it three times now. So I think it has more to do with that. His having a person, having a sister who was lost uh, in this process I think she's taken that role in his mind. That's how that read to me. But yes, that does feel like a screenwriter would take up that thread and go, oh, I'm going to complicate this by having them get involved with one another. And I would really much like to punch that person if that were to happen. Yeah, I don't, I don't want it. I don't need, Do I don't want. need it. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Stan, I know we talked about this a bit in uh, our Scream 2 episodes, but Stab is a terrible movie. <laughs> okay. I know, it was, I know it was designed to be terrible, but mission accomplished, everyone. Mission accomplished. As we denoted last episode, and obviously that is a, a thread that we are pulling all the way through, we have dueling webcams happening here. Now, Gail set up four webcams. Those are covered uh, when she goes to back inside the barn of Stabathon and tries to figure out what's going on with her cameras, she discovers another camera is looking at her. She picks up her web camera and holds it to her side backwards so that when Dewey arrives, 
and looks inside her car, he can see that Ghostface is right behind her, but he can't tell her about it. An exact reverse of the same dynamic from Scream 2. And that is why I kind of love this movie. You know, I didn't even I didn't even think of that. You're absolutely right. It's her, you know, banging on the soundproof glass saying Ghostface is behind you and he can't hear it. And it just it's a dance, baby. <laughs> it rhymes like poetry. However you want to put it, it's it just tells me that Scream 4 is a more thoughtful construction than what they were afforded for Scream 3. You know, yeah. Uh, it's not. It's not to take anything away from Scream Three. It's just they were so fucked with that, and I just don't trust Aaron Kruger as a storyteller for these characters. That I feel like it just come that the the sequence plotting and the character plotting does not work as well as one, two, and four because Williamson is much more of a force there. I agree. We get a dance around. Hay bales, and I do have to wonder why this isn't a us. I just wish it was a bit more of this on the screen two level of suspense sequences. But I, it's a tight space. They may not have had the time they needed. I wish there's a bit more suspense going up than people juking and jiving around hay bales. Uh, as thrilling as that might be. Uh, regardless, uh, Gale takes a stab to the shoulder, Ghostface escapes, and we learn yet again that Dewey is a terrible shot. <laughs> I, he is, don't, don't you have to take, like, you know, don't you have to you know, get, like, you know, practice in on the range and, and get some sort of, you know, minimum amount of targets hit to, to, to maintain your, your license? I agree. You probably do. But, you know, when he's called upon to take a gun out of his holster, um, he's just not quite the dead shot that either Gail or Sydney turn out to be. <laughs> he, is, he is a terrible shot and they are much better. Of course, most of their victims are lying on the ground and just go blah, 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 blah at people. So, you know, you just have to kind of be ready at that point. But regardless, uh, Gail uh, will survive this uh, sequence, um, but let's cut to two people who won't. That's Haas and Perkins, who are outside the Roberts' house. Um, here we get a bit of a, we're not in a horror movie, we're in a cop movie, and so cop movie rules apply. Um, we learned that uh, Haas is a rookie, uh, and therefore he's at most at danger, but... During the sequence in which Haas goes out to do a perimeter check, we hear a cat being killed in the background. Did Ghostface kill that cat? Is that what's supposed to be happening? It sounds all like I, it's all, being strangled. All I all I saw was all I got like on like I, I heard it and then on the on the, the caption said something like, you know, cat screeching. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's being stomped on. It's very weird. I don't know if that's just a, a sound person joke. Uh, who who can say? Uh, but Haas goes around. Sydney, we know, is inside the house. She silences some wind chimes and good for her. Those are very annoying. Um, but Haas notices a window is open, radios to Perkins saying, was this, was this true the last time you did a perimeter check? He doesn't hear anything, so he runs. Uh, back to the car, assuming that Perkins might be in danger. Perkins is uh, face first on the uh, the 
steering wheel of the car, and it's all a joke. Does it's all my, a joke. Does my favorite thing of you know, when you, you know, when you're in a situation where people might be in danger, start playing jokes. Great time to <laughs> great time to, to pull out the old joke book. It works for everyone. Everybody loves that. Everybody loves having a good laugh after you have filled your pants with urine. <laughs> you just shake out, you just wring out those pants, put them back on to have a good laugh. Just you know, breaking the suspense a little bit by pretending that you have that you have been murdered, which is a thing that is actually happening to people around you. And is about to happen to them because out of the shadows, Ghostface arrives to uh, sink a knife into uh, Haas's back. Uh, and before Perkins can do anything, Ghostface pulls a get bunked here. And I, through the window of the car, it's through something, baby. And that means it's a get bunked. And not only that, it's a really great one. I'd forgotten how grisly this shit is. I was gonna say, I mean, but that's some, also some incredible forearm strength to to uh, <laughs> get a, a a knife through somebody's forehead. I mean, that's the that's the thickest part of your skull right there. Yeah, yeah I, yeah, like uh, does does Perkins have like a f- weird fontanelle situation? He, where has like, in his- he just has like one little soft spot. Yeah. <laughs> It just goes it just goes in like jello as opposed <laughs> to like everywhere else. He has to be careful at the barber. He's like, oh, don't don't mess with that. That's the one empty spot in my <laughs> forehead. Um, but he buries that knife in the forehead, and Perkins is kind of like uh t- blinded by it. Like he's he's alive, but he's not entirely aware of what's happening. And he gets out of the car, walks about three steps, falls to the ground. And I can't think of a better quote to end on than fuck Bruce Willis. <laughs> I, I want that on my headstone. <laughs> Your headstone is filling up, Gina. Oh, with- it's a, yeah, it's a, it's just a, it's reading material for you know, everybody who comes to visit me. <laughs> Absolutely. You can't be sobbing over my grave the entire time. <laughs> You got to provide some LARFs from people who come to the funeral and are visiting you after the fact. I, I made you laugh in life. I will make <laughs> you laugh in death. Uh, speaking of laughing in death, it is time to choose our own death venture. And that is where of the deaths that we witnessed in this section of the movie, if you were forced to die that way, which one would you choose and why? Up for bid in this episode, we have stabbed in the stomach, then tossed off a parking lot roof onto a news van. <laughs> Uh, just stabbed straight up in the back and left to bleed out and then stabbed in the forehead, get bunch style. Uh, Ryan, you are our guest and that means you get to go first. Oh, such wonderful options. Uh, I guess I, I get thrown over the thing because it's um, Rebecca's death. I, it's mm-hmm. the drama of it all. Like <laughs> if I'm going to go yeah. out, I mean, at least I can do a death drop before I hit the top of the van <laughs> and, and, and the people who love me will, will will love me as my leg is bent behind me eternally. So <laughs> a quite literal death drop. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, I, I think that works for me. Gina, what say you? Well, I definitely don't want to be stabbed in the head because that, that, yeah. that took too long for him to, for him to die. <laughs> I mean, we. I mean, it looked like. I mean, he. They just stabbed. Uh. Uh. What was the Haas? 
Yeah. Like they just stabbed him back. He just dropped like a sack of potatoes. So I yeah, don't know. He got they, him, but good. He yeah, might've gotten I, him I, through the back of the heart, you know, yeah, I, he just, whatever it is. He just, he just, he just went out immediately. So I'm just yeah. going to, I'm going to take Haas. Uh, well, just for variety, then I'm taking stabbed in the forehead. Cause while it hurts in the moment, it does feel like Perkins is a dead man, literal dead man walking. And I would finally get to proclaim fuck Bruce Willis before I'm dying. <laughs> I mean, what's stopping you now? I don't know. I've said it twice. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could start. Would, you could just start like a Twitter bot that just posts "fuck Bruce Willis" once a day, every day. <laughs> That's proprietary. That's just kill by kill. We own that idea right now. Bruce Willis uh, listening that, to this episode, like, hey man, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> If we've cranked Bruce Willis's podcast <laughs> habit, which I do not believe he has, because the last thing he wants to do is hear anybody else's opinions. Uh, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, we'll probably get away with this one. Uh, there are no meddling kids who can make this happen. Not even Bruce Willis's. Um, and that pretty much does it. But before we go, uh, Ryan, tell our audience where they can uh, see, read, hear more from you. So I have a podcast, uh, Brother Ghoulish's Tune, which you can find on all podcast things. Um, you can find me on social media, at Brother Ghoulish. And if you want to meet me in person, I'm haunting an underpass near you. So. All right. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> all right. I, I know where several are, so that'll be fun. We can just hook up and talk about things. Gina, uh, where can people find you on these here internets? I write about movies and television at thespool.net. Uh, some things you can look forward to for me this month are reviews of the Todd Haynes documentary about the Velvet Underground. And I will be covering Halloween Kills. Uh, I am also on Twitter under Porcelain72 and on Instagram under Gina Does Things. That's G-E-N-A Does Things. Do it today, people. Check it out. You can find us on the Twitters, on the Facebooks, on the Instagrams. We're on TikTok, believe it or not. Uh, even though I once upon a time said I would never do it, here I am. I'm a part of the problem. Uh, you can visit our t-shirt store. We've got new t-shirts coming your way uh, in the near future that are really going to be great. I think they're going to knock your socks off. Uh, that are super fun. Uh, please rate review us on iTunes or anywhere that you get podcasts. It helps us be seen and heard by more people and join our Patreon where we are talking about a new movie every single month. Plus you will now get the opportunity to hear us talk about the Halloween series uh, from the beginning, all 11 films uh, so far. Uh, we will be doing commentaries for so you'll be able to watch the movie and hear us in your ears talking it off just how you like it don't worry folks the body count will continue for myself for gina and for ryan bye-bye everybody bye, bye. bye.